like a small boat on the ocean, sending big waves into motion. This is the East of England. This is Eastern Promise. Welcome to episode 48 of Eastern Promise and our first of 2023. I'm Mike Rigby and I am delighted to have your company as together we explore the full potential of the East of England. I'm joined by Robin Milton, founder of Fairer Games, a Norwich-based computer games company founded to provide high-quality, creator-driven content which tells the stories of people of marginalised genders. We'll also be heading to Cambridge Science Park for a snifter of tech and beer. I'll be chatting with our tech sector's very own greatest showman, Kent Height, as well as Tim Granger, from our hosts, the streaming giant Roku. And finally, strap in for a wild ride as I look at where you go in the east of England to get your adrenaline rush in this week's Crowd Sorcery. But first, all the news that's fit to say aloud. Priscilla Bacon Hospice needs your help. As a result of growth within its online sales department, the hospice urgently requires volunteers to join its growing team in the following roles. Postage and packing assistant. Packing sold items to the highest standard using predominantly repurposed materials and completing postage documents. Draft lister, who will help the e-commerce team produce detailed item descriptions for online listings and achieve the maximum sale price. The hospice also requires photographers to help sell products across its online platforms, making use of mannequins and lighting to take the perfect picture on a mobile device. If you're interested in volunteering at Priscilla Bacon Hospice, or would like a chat about any of these roles, then please call Lucy Whitby on 01603 or email lucywhitby at priscillabaconhospice.org.uk. And that was the news. Send your stories, announcements, and glad tidings of great joy to newsdesk at easternpromise.site. Hello, I'm Robin Milton. I'm founder of Fairer Games, which is a games development company that I set up focused on telling the history and stories of women and marginalised genders. Exactly half of the GamesRadar.com's top 20 most iconic computer games characters of all time are depicted as white men. A further six are creatures that are identified as being male, including a certain blue hedgehog. Another is the humble Tetris block, to whom only the most off their trolley troll would attempt to assign a gender. That leaves just three characters. Chun-Li from Street Fighter, L from The Last of Us, and the inimitable Lara Croft as the best-known female protagonists in computer games, with only Chun-Li representing an ethnic minority. 
that level of diversity isn't ideal from a storytelling perspective. And when it comes to the UK gaming industry itself, I'm afraid we are in dire need of a power-up. Only around a quarter of the sector's workforce is female, and only one in ten are from an ethnic minority. This is robbing the gaming industry of perspectives, skills and ideas which would, as my guest today points out, make games better. However, the East of England is embedded in the DNA of computer games, with classic titles like Elite and Sensible World of Soccer coming from Cambridge, through to the much more recent hit Paper Trail from Norwich. And the region is again leading the way, with new approaches to improving the diversity of the sector, creating a richer and more vibrant environment for coders, designers and gamers. Leading that charge is Norwich-based gamer, designer and founder of Fairer Games, Robin Milton. Welcome, Robin, to Eastern Promise. I think it's really important and really, really great to, to be able to talk to you today. In, in, we're sitting in Norwich in St Mary's House. Robin, tell us what's the philosophy behind Fair Games. You gave you gave us sort of a little pen picture a of it there. A little picture, yeah. But what, what, so the origin and the and the, what brought you to, to to doing that? Up until recently, I'd been doing some research work for a organisation called Women in Games which are focused on helping support um, diversity and get more women into the games industry. And when I was doing that research, uh, there was a statistic from the, I believe it was the World Economic Forum, which do an annual report on the gender gap. And it said that Western Europe was around 57 years away from gender parity um, across things like access to healthcare, politics, um, education, economic independence. And uh, that's going to be quite a while after I've retired. And I realised that um, I just I just didn't want to kind of sit around and not do anything to try and shift that needle forward a little bit. I realised that I'm one person and I've just started a company. But that's really, that was the kind of inciting incident to make me want to try and do something because businesses which are founded to... Um, focus on improving diversity tend to have a knock-on effect so the people they hire even if they don't work there for a long time will often go to other companies and in turn kind of spread that um, focus on diversity so that was the kind of starting point. You were initially a student at Newer, uh, yes, University of the Arts. What was, your, what was the experience of that like? Because I'm very very fond of Newer and I'm very fond of experiences working with them. I didn't go there but... Yeah yeah no I, I love I love the university. Um, I I originally was looking at their fine art course because when I was at college, I was looking into becoming an art therapist, right. which is quite niche for right. us kind of 17-year-olds to say, I'm going to do this. But I really, really, um, I love the idea of using creativity and working with people and art therapy really kind of brings those two things together. Um, but I didn't really want to do a fine art degree. I was just told that that was the best route. And when I went to an open day, um, I saw on the kind of schedule that they had a games art session happening and I just thought, oh, I'll go and see what that's about. I would played video games casually, but hadn't really thought about it as a career. Um, and then Mary Claire Eisman, who was the head of games at the time, was doing this open day talk. And I remember she was showing these games that were meditative, that were kind of like purely artistic and kind of exploring concepts and they weren't anything like what I expected 
And that was the thing that made me realise that games have a way of not making you choose your like particular kind of specialism. You can bring music to it, writing, arts, science, history. Mm-hmm. You know, you can bring all of these things to yeah. the medium of games. And once that kind of all clicked together, I was hooked. <laughs> I was like, no, this is where I want to go. This is what I want to study. So, um, yeah, so I did a three-year games art and design course there. Graduated 2014. Um, yeah, loved. I loved uh, studying a techie subject in an arts university because it, it made me feel a lot more comfortable in that kind of subject area yeah. than if it was more computer science focused or just programming and development focused. It allowed for a lot more blending of that with creative subjects, which is what I'd come from anyway. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I always really liked that about it. So you've you sort of founded Fairer Games to, to 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 not just I think make games that fairer for 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 women as you say women in underrepresented genres, but to sort of raise awareness and campaign for that more broadly in the industry. I mean, some of the things I've been looking into says yes, the industry is changing, but it's at a a, a pace that would be outrun by a glacier, and yes. um, and you've also got the very toxic culture that has become evident. Um, especially since the rise of social media. Now, amid, uh, against that rather grim backdrop, um, where's you know what? How are you going to bring fair games to market and, and, and really help uh, change the world for for, for uh, I feel always feel really uncomfortable saying these things as a man, especially well, a white middle aged man, yeah, which is like you know I think it's, it's the it's, Darth it's, Vader of genre, of uh, <laughs> demographics. Really, yeah. yeah, no, I think I think it's really it's. It's really important to have these kinds of conversations. And I think, you know, just people who are in demographics that do experience challenges, just them talking amongst themselves isn't necessarily going to bring about change. Um, I think I don't I don't want to say that I think I'm going to change the world because I think it's a really quick way to um, come a cropper with a new business is having these kind of big ideas and not focusing on the day to day. But I hope that I can change a couple of people's worlds, you know, kind of flip it around the other way. So a big thing um, that I found was it took me way longer than um, I maybe thought it would to get the guts to actually start a business, particularly a games one. Um, there seems to be uh, a bit of a atmosphere of needing to prove yourself before you can then start a company and kind of um, start making your own projects. And like I acknowledge that people do need experience, um, but I think I was kind of stuck in that cycle of always thinking that I wasn't quite ready and then would just never do it. So I want to see if there's ways that I can shorten that kind of journey for other people. So right. whether that's making it more um, transparent about the process, my process of starting a business, and I hope to be able to kind of share mistakes that I make or things that went really well that I had to be convinced to kind of do because I didn't think it would go well. You know, all this kind of um, like seeking, not permission, but kind of seeking reassurance hope that there might be a way I can kind of speed that up for other people. So if there's other women or like people who aren't represented in the games industry thinking, oh, I can't start a business, you know, I'm not ready or I 
I don't have enough game titles under my belt or enough years experience in the industry. I want to hopefully try and help them see that you 100% can. And even if the business fails, it's still like we're still moving that needle. Like even if there's lots of people starting businesses that don't become the next Activision Blizzard, you're still kind of having an impact and that's still going to start shifting kind of the not perspective but the, the atmosphere i think yeah. around like making games it's it shouldn't be this kind of um specialist only certain people can be successful at this thing i want to try and encourage more people to do it mm. and also people from outside a games background because yeah. they often make some of the most interesting games it's when they're from a psychology background or a historian or a creative writer or a scientist. Like, there's plenty of scientists that have had some fantastic kind of inputs into games. So that's, I think that's the particular angle I want to go down because there's a lot of routes that you can do. I'm a Women in Games ambassador, so I spend, you know, a good chunk of my time mentoring young people, going into schools, just trying to kind of be visible and accessible. So if people are interested in working in games... I can kind of help them do that. Um, but with the company, with Fairer Games, my biggest kind of wish for it would be that it helps demystify and make the process more accessible for other people to start games companies. Yeah. And you're doing all this whilst you're actually running a games company. Yes. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, well, that's what I mean about having to remember your day to day. It's like, you know, I've still got to be working on a game whilst I'm also trying to kind of work out the trajectory of the business <laughs> and its mission and all of that. So it's, yeah, it's um, definitely a juggling act. Yes, I can imagine. So tell me tell me about the, the Fairy Games uh, library. What's, 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 uh, what titles have you put out there? So we, I started the company in May, so we haven't released any games yet. Right, okay, um, that was a bit... bit <laughs> I was getting too far ahead of myself. No, there. well, I think you know, it really depends on the scale of the game you're making. You can release games quite quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, I've actually spent most of the summer um, applying for accelerator programs and government funding to try and kind of shore up the business start. Because um, sometimes people very easily, we're all creative. You get so focused on a particular project, you forget yeah. about the business that needs yeah. to survive. <laughs> for that project to survive. So um, the first project that I'm working on, um, I can't talk about it too much, but what I will say is um, it's a narrative adventure game Mm -hmm. and it's set at the time, um, it's the late 1500s and it's going to be based in Norwich. Wow. Uh, Yeah, I know. I thought I'd get very niche Um, and you play as um, an alewife or a brewster or a woman who is brewing. Yeah. And so we're focusing on that bit of history and exploring it um, through, yeah, narrative adventure. Yeah, because they, they made a game, didn't they, of um, Ken Follett's Pillars of the Earth. Oh, I don't know that. Yeah, um, it's one of those ones that I, 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 I cop for free off the Epic's Game Store because they do oh, free excellent. games every so often. So uh, cop for cop, got that one for free and I haven't, I haven't played it yet. Um, but uh, yeah, so yeah, that's that's that's. Uh, there's so many, especially if, like me, if you grew up in the eighties and nineties, where, where you know video games started off as you know b- b- with pong. Yeah, the 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 range is is just bewildering now. So I remember when we first talked, we talked about uh, the difference between games featuring female characters and games created by women. 
mm. because, and a lot of the research um, that I've, I've read has, has gone into this at length, a lot of the female characters in games are either, if it's a protagonist, then they're hypersexualized. And if they're not, if they're just a, a you know, a, an NPC, then they are pretty pathetic. And they don't, you know, oh, help, help, kind of a thing. Um, so what what would you say is is that difference between, uh, you know, that's, that, well, apart from, it sounds blatantly obvious now I say it out loud, but what's the difference, really, I suppose, between those those two things, the the, the, the female characters and the, the games designed, characters that are designed by women? Yeah. yeah. That was, that was, that was, as Bill Bailey says, that was a uh, long walk down a windy beach to a cafe that was uh, hopefully not closed. So <laughs> Yeah, no, I, th I, I know where you're coming from. I think... It's one of those things where I guess the reason why we were talking about representation of women and, you know, it's, it's not just about having women in games content. It's how they're portrayed, which is going to have the impact because of women have been in video games. Mm -hmm. since you know, the first Lara Croft game and yes. others before that. Um, I think the big difference is it, you see it in um, writing, in film, in all kinds of media. You need um, people in the room that represent the characters, stories or settings that you are creating around. You need people in that room that are part of that for it to be authentic, for yeah. it to be um, respectful, for it to be, um, yeah, a, a part of, I guess, like a realistic uh, representation of that thing. So I think a big... Um, this sounds very dramatic. A big disappointment for me is like often the writing of women um, mm -hmm. in media. It just tends to be very cliche. There's not there's not kind of multifaceted characters. It's sort of like you fit into this functional box, and that's not to say that that doesn't affect um, like other genders and men. Like it very much does. It's just mm. I think having um, women in the creation process just ultimately changes the the feel and the impact of the the game or like the media that you're creating but it's hard to kind of scientifically mm. be like no, it's funny there is a 30 percent uptick in you know xyz i think what i find funny is is I, I i absolutely get what you're saying a lot of the times i felt like when i've been involved in a creative team and it's almost exclusively been working predominantly with women, that the end product was far more well-rounded than, than perhaps it otherwise could have been. And I don't, I don't know why that is, um, but, but there we go. Yeah, I've always found working, working in, a, in a predominantly female team quite a rewarding experience. Well, I think when you're in a creative capacity, having people who are going to have a different perspective on what you're doing or disagree with your perspective on what you're doing is really good for the creative product. If you have a bunch of people that are just saying, yes, I agree yes, with perhaps. everything, mm -hmm. the the content's not going to be that good. And yeah. it's the same with games. Like, I like working with people that are, that challenge me if I'm coming up with something because it through the process of being challenged on it you end up with something better at the end of it because if someone just said yeah that sounds great everything's great you're going to end up doing things that you probably shouldn't because no one challenged you on it and i think that's you can see that a lot in content so if you're working with teams of people that you know don't look like you don't sound like you don't have the same background as you you're going to come at the same problem in different ways and what you create is going to be more rounded because 
you can't kind of you can't think as someone else you can only think as yourself so it's kind of if if you don't bring people in that are different it's just end up with confirmation bias yes. and it can be yeah um to and i think i know the answer to this already but i'll ask you, I'll ask you anyway um, to what extent does the gaming industry understand its uh women its female customers <laughs> i think it's it's a really tricky one um i think something that we were talking about is that you can't accurately measure um the success of a game with its particular players if it was only designed for like so for example i'm gonna have to word salad it a little bit because it's a big concept but like if we look at like first person shooter games a lot mm -hmm. of people would traditionally say that that's not aimed at women see we're talking here like your doom yeah call um, of duty yeah mm -hmm. of honor all the things um however there is a large chunk of women that enjoy and regularly play them compete in those game genres at an international level yeah yeah so there's there's no you can't ever do a kind of like a classic segmentation of it but i think what the reason why i feel like there's a great market opportunity for fairer games is that you know, we're designing games which are for people who are interested in history in narrative in storytelling and that's not going to be for everyone but i think that that's kind of um group of players maybe haven't been served as much as the others um, and me personally I know how much um, I really buy into a franchise if I really yeah. like it and spend a lot of money yes um, <laughs> probably more than I should um, and I think that you know, you're you're really missing out on you know some some great financial rewards mm. for not um, seeking to meet those kind of market needs. I think my my own person, my Steam account, is groaning under the weight of Lego games. Nice. <laughs> so I've got practically all of them now, which are just waiting for the sale, and I, I leap. And I mean, it's interesting. I yeah. got a list talking while we're on the subject of titles. Mm -hmm. uh, this is from, uh, I, I, I confess, I, I don't know the name, uh, Kingwin, um, whatever that, whoever they are, but um, it's a gaming marketplace, and it revealed which games were more popular amongst women in 2020. Now, I'm going to name these, and you can tell me if you've played okay. them or not. And I'll, I know Sims 4. Oh yeah, I play that a lot. Top of the shop. Yeah. Uh, Minecraft is second. I have played that. I do enjoy it. My nephews always say, "Have you played Minecraft?" And I'm like, "No, no, I don't know." It's that. it's taken me a long time to play Minecraft. I've only really started playing it recently. Really? Which, considering it came out like over 10 years ago. Yeah, we, now. Won't, we, won't, we don't need to date <laughs> these things. Um, <laughs> Rust. That's that's a new one on me. Okay. No, so I haven't played Rust. Um, it's quite a um, ruthless uh, kind of survival game. Yeah, uh, yeah. So it's kind of, I think, and I might get this wrong, but some of my students used to play it a lot, and I think it kind of resets each time. So when you play it, you kind of get thrown in and you get randomised mm -hmm. equipment and things. So you, yeah. you kind of have to, yeah, scrap it out, but... I might be wrong. Another Just one, another one here that's familiar to all my to, to my nephews. Uh, Fortnite. Okay, no, I haven't played Fortnite. Neither have I. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know about you, but I'm not huge on multiplayer games. I yeah, think, I, I, you know. I enjoy. Well, I used to enjoy multiplayer games. I used to play a lot of Call of Duty actually, um, but there just hasn't been quite anything that's met that mm. need for me anymore. Like. Um, I really like small maps 
in first-person shooters because it's really scrappy and it's like really chaotic. You don't have to like spend ages searching for them. Yeah, like I don't like it where you've got a massive map and someone can snipe you from a million miles away and then you've yes. got to try and find them. Like for me, like I appreciate that there's people that really enjoy that, but for me, I'm not very good at sniping or anything like that. So for me, I'm just like, yep, grenades, stabbing, just anything in there. And the small maps really do that well, but not a lot of games have gone that way in recent years. So I'm, um, yeah. yeah. Sniping. It's much more fun in real life, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I wouldn't know. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned Call of Duty. No, I, I, I say I, I don't like the the whole point of me coming up to my to my office to play a computer game is to be by myself. Why would I want to do it with loads of other people? You yeah. know, um, who can expose how rubbish I am? Especially. Uh, you see, know. I'm very comfortable with how rubbish I am. So ah, that's that's where that's I'm going wrong. I'm not. Yeah. Um, Call of Duty is rounding out the top five. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned Call of Duty, followed by Ark. Okay. Yep. Yeah. I haven't played right. it. Lego Star Wars? I haven't played Lego Star Wars. Oh. I've played the other Lego games. Oh, you're missing I, something. I have to say something very controversial now. What's that? I'm I'm not a fan of Star Wars. Okay, we'll cut that. We'll definitely cut that out. We'll, <laughs> that, we'll, I, I, don't, I don't want to, you know, as, as ga- gaming, uh, ga- gaming culture being what it is, I think we should I know, probably it's, it's like we say I out. love film and yet don't like The Godfather or whatever, which I, I do like The Godfather, but it, no, I feel I like really it's a similar them. thing. It's yeah. like... The no, Star it's like, Wars of, yeah. we've, we've, I think we can't... And Star Trek, you see. Okay, so, and the last three are Planet Zoo. Oh, yeah, I've played that a lot, mm-hmm. actually. I've now, spent this, a lot this, of money on that game. This one sounds like it, it might be up your street. Anno 1800. So, I haven't played it, but I've played some of the other Anno ah, games. Ah, right, I, I, so I, I don't know. And Skyrim. One. Yeah, I've played Skyrim. Now, Skyrim's very interesting because that game is old. Mm-hmm. And yet, it's still incredibly popular. That's just, that's just, I mean, what is it that makes a game popular? I think the big thing is, personally, I think it's storytelling. Oh. Um, you can have very basic gameplay um, experience, but if the storytelling's really good, I think that's the thing that sticks around because that's the thing that you talk to your friends about. You talk about like moments in a game or particular in like uh, RPG games, which Skyrim is, um, you might have a slightly different experience of the same bit of story because you, you know, your character makes different dialogue choices or has made different decisions in the game. Mm-hmm. And you, you can kind of share those stories and I feel like that is the thing that sustains it a little bit. I'm, like, I'm no kind of particular expert knowledge on it, but I think storytelling is... That's the thing that makes it timeless, like Guybrush. Yes. <laughs> it's so- a ridiculously just odd character, really well written. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that has kind of made him quite timeless, even though, yeah, the original games came out so long ago, younger generations still know of them because people talk about the stories and the characters. And I think, and it's, it's, he's, I hesitate to use the word every man, but he's sort of someone who's determined to, to pursue a particular career. And this may be a lesson for me, I don't know, despite the, you know, the obvious lack of any aptitudes to succeed yeah. in, his, in his chosen path. But he's not deterred. Um, so, yeah, the, it says here, um, 66% of uh, female gamers are between 18 to 34. Uh, most female users are under the age of 35. Uh, but we've got a, a, a whopping 11% over 55. So what do you think that might tell us about you know, the gaming market? You know, there's yeah. a, a sizable, like we're talking about 100, over 100,000 of this, this marketplace's customers are women over the age of 50. Yeah. So I think 
not many people talk about it that much, but um, women in that kind of age bracket are spending quite a lot of money on games. It tends to be, and there again, these are generalizations, but it tends to be mobile games, often they're casual games, and a big factor often is social elements to yeah. it. And what there has been a kind of, I think, almost like a cross-pollination where there was a lot of women who, for the first time, really got into games when um, Facebook games became a thing and it was quite social and you would kind of trade items with your friends on Facebook mm -hmm. and you'd all play together and all those annoying notifications we all used to get. <laughs> yes. Like, you know, the Farmville kind of boom, really, there's like so many things that are kind of off-shooted, sh off off-shot from that. Write that know. down. That yeah. Like a word. <laughs> um, yeah. So then you have games like Candy Crush, yeah. which was universally um, kind of played. Um, I deliberately didn't because I was doing my university degree at the time and I thought I might fail <laughs> if I start playing this. There's been a few games that I've done that with. Minecraft was another one of them where I yeah. go, I would definitely put thousands of hours into this, so I'm just going to leave it, not touch it. Um, and I think those sorts of games almost were an entry point for a lot of people that hadn't really found games that fit their interests or that they enjoyed playing. And they have now gone on to continue playing games and like iPad and mobile games um, are much more common now because smartphones are really prevalent. Like a lot of people have them. Whereas it used to be people that were maybe younger or more tech focused that had a smartphone. Now everyone has one. Mm -hmm. Um, iPhones in particular, they're really accessible. Um, Apple promotes a lot of the games on their arcades and stuff. And I think people, maybe like unless you're really looking at the games industry regularly like I am, you might not realise that yeah. that's actually quite a sizable market of people that are regularly playing games. Like when I used to teach about um, like player types, a lot of people would say, oh, um, like casual gamers versus hardcore gamers. Have you heard those terms? Yeah. Yeah, so the the issue with that is a lot of people think, oh, okay, if you're a hardcore gamer, you're playing something like World of Warcraft 12 hours a day, whichever. But it's not so much about the genre of the game. You could be playing Candy Crush eight hours a day every day, and that would make you a hardcore gamer. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's like even though that game scene is being casual, you can play it it's in a very yeah. non-casual way, in a very kind of you know intense way, and I think you know that is happening more often. Yeah, it's time invested rather than yeah. you know the the, the, the content. So um, one interesting thing I looked up was that it's it's almost as much a, a, the difference between you know between genre. Uh, gen Start that again. I'm going to cut that bit out definitely. <laughs> There is obviously differences between genders uh, in terms of um, the kind of games they prefer and why they play them. But one of the interesting things I, I uncovered, 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 um, was the extent to, to which there's also differences between cultures and nationalities and how uh, French women, uh, for example, play for, uh, I don't know, it, it's achievement, uh, whereas women in Asia um, annoyingly, they, they see to divide, you know, get, get it down to France, but we'll just call it Asia. Mm -hmm. um, they, um, 
they apparently predominantly do it for social reasons and so on and so on and others you know and american women do it for you know for achievement and basically showing their husbands up and that kind of thing etc etc and to what extent first, first first of all i should ask you what do you think why do you think british women or east anglian women or, or whatever you know however you'd like to break it down uh what do you think they play for and do you think that those those things are true? Are they helpful, or, or are they just sort of another reason? You know, another that someone's found a reason to write an article with. You know, um... I'm going to answer in probably a really annoying way. Oh, cool. Which I'll... is by not answering. But there is a reason for that. the The whole kind of the preamble there is a really great example of how data on players, and particularly segmented data, which looks at gender-based demographics when they're playing video games is just so patchy. Um, it makes it really hard to be able to draw any real conclusions about how people are playing, why, how much, how long, how much they're spending. Because often, to give an example, like when um, you might find like studies on like the UK games industry, um, they might tell you like the gender split um, so the gender kind of identities of the people working in the industry, but they might not show that segmented against the kind of the genres of games that they're working on, which yeah. would be a useful thing. <laughs> You're all right. <laughs> I, cool. You know what? I've had far worse interrupts an interview, so I really like, wouldn't you're worry. You're not a drunk swearing person. And I, you know, mind. you're not announcing that the train's about to arrive in Wyndham, yeah. which, which was louder than I thought. If you do yeah. need that, let me know. <laughs> the time sponsored by Acuras. <laughs> uh, yeah, what was I saying? Yes, so the the kind of the issue that I have with the data is that you just can't you can't cross reference mm. between it to get a real picture yeah. of who these players are. Um, when I was doing the research with women in games, we really struggled to find information on the amount of women that were running games businesses. We knew how many women that, that were working. We knew how many games businesses there were. But trying to cross-reference those two so you could really um, talk about it in an informed way was a real struggle. And the other part of it is um, a lot of large kind of data... Um, based companies, so research organisations, still only um, when they're asking about people's gender, they still only give them two binary options, which there again means that you're not really representing who the people are that are playing the games. Mm -hmm. And it's that's the biggest challenge for me when trying to have these kinds of conversations is that like I don't have data to draw on to be able to share with people because it's just not quite there yet. There isn't um, easy stats for me to draw from. The easiest one I can kind of pull is from Newzu, which is looking at um, gender split of players globally, which is like, I think, 46% of uh, players globally or game enthusiasts globally are women. So like people who play games or are really interested in games. Yeah. But there again, it's like you don't know where they are based on continent or their intentions for playing but yeah, I would say Newzoo actually have got some nice player profiles, um, which are focused on play styles, um, not demographics, but they have things like, um, I think one's called like the community gamer. 
and it's someone who plays games, but they actually spend a, a bigger chunk of their time in communities around gaming. So they might be running a Discord server or being involved in like Reddit threads and things. And it's, mm -hmm. I think Newsy have done a bit more kind of work trying to look at like patterns of behavior and how you can target your games at them, where there's a lot of other research you find is just this kind of like bizarre, like, you know, gamer mums but they don't really tell you about like what's going on there or like how much money they're spending or how yeah. you could add, you know it's like a little bit um there's so always something missing yeah so it's it's really kind of you you remind me of my um, one of my uh, it was my thesis but um my one at university when i i decided to uh, do a study of the italian job the film and there was no critical writing anywhere about the italian job so basically <laughs> winged it and um uh, but you know what uh, would you say is the most prevalent trope that you've come across in terms of um you know misrepresentation i suppose you'd call it oh god there's too many um i was gonna say what's, think... your, what's, your, what's your uh bet noir your, i was gonna say favorite but least favorite i suppose yeah your most hated um it's funny, actually, like, I think in terms of, like, female characters in, in games, I always get really disappointed where often you'll have um, a character that's the one that's spoiling the fun. I don't right. know. It, maybe it's too vague a description, but it's like um, sometimes it's like a mum character. Sometimes it's like a member of a team or something but often it is a woman being like no that's too risky or like oh we shouldn't be doing that or you know is very like risk averse or whichever and as much as like those styles of characters have a place I just it, it that's the one that usually really kind of gets me because I don't want women in game content to be seen as like the ones that are like yeah, putting a dampener on the fun. Like, there's plenty of, you know, hyper-sexualised um, or, like, hyper-aggressive character tropes, which is just weird. Um, but, yeah, it's the one... It's the slightly more subtle one, which is the character that's kind of, like, yeah, just slightly putting a dampener on everything. Yeah. Or trying to, like, pull people back from doing something reckless or fun <laughs> <laughs> which i yeah that's the where i'm like oh come on it was going really well and then now yeah now it's like it's the girl in the team which is the one that's saying that we shouldn't do something or whatever yeah so it all goes a bit swallows in amazons and you know you oh, oh. sorry i should just try not to break your light you're very expensive looking <laughs> like um so you what is the norwich gaming space like in terms of starting a business in the in the gaming sphere you obviously you you went to newer um what's that ecosystem like so there is norfolk game developers which mm -hmm. is a local meetup group i help organize that um we meet once a month and we alternate between doing uh show and tells and socials and the show and tells are basically an opportunity for people to bring anything they've been tinkering with working on game builds board games tabletops, card games, whatever. Uh, we had a couple of people bring some like escape room designed physical puzzles, which were right. really cool. Um, and we just run that as a way to help connect people and give people kind of space where they can, yeah, showcase what they're doing, get some feedback. 
Um, and then the socials are just more of a kind of, I guess, like a slightly less pressured environment if you don't necessarily want to only go to events where like you have to show something or be supportive of someone showing something like if you just want to chat to people about games that you love the socials are there for that um i think uea has a games society at the uni and then obviously norwich university arts have got their games courses and the talent coming out of the university is is incredibly high the courses globally like recognized yeah. as being one of the best games art courses in the world um but the the kind of gap that i've been talking about for a long time and i guess i'm trying to fill now by starting my own business is there aren't many opportunities for people who are talented graduating with all the skills to get their first kind of rung on the ladder in terms of their games careers in norfolk um there are some there's like there's a lot of independent developers. A lot of them are one to five person teams, and that really limits their ability to take on a graduate and be able yeah. to kind of take them under their wing. And um, there aren't any kind of big games companies that could facilitate having like a graduate program or whichever. And that often results in people moving away to be able to get their kind of foothold in their careers. So where, where, where's lucky that? lucky if they come back. <laughs> where does that go to? Where do they go to, do you think? Um, Cambridge is a big draw because they've got the science park there. There's a number of big games companies there. Um, London is another one. And then Manchester um, and Birmingham as well also have like really thriving hubs. Um, one of the organisers of Norfolk Game Developers moved to... Brighton for work, and another one moved to Manchester right. for their careers. So, mm. well, I suppose in Ca- at least in Cambridge it stays in the region, but uh, you know, we, yeah. we, it's the, dr- the 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 drain, and that's that that is a challenge. Um, yeah, and when you're first starting out, I mean, I know I'm only talking about people, maybe like young people, and there are people who maybe want to transfer from other careers. Um, but when you're first starting out, you don't have loads of money to be spending on train mm-hmm. fare to commute to London or or um, Cambridge or whatnot. So that's, I think, if we can plug that gap a little bit, you would very quickly see a kind of talent pipeline form and larger games companies and it could very quickly come on. Because it's funny, we were talking on the train journey we did the other day about the next step. There's an hourly service on the train to Cambridge. would be a half-hourly service. And when you do that, that opens up all all kinds of possibilities and it's so easy to get backwards and forwards. Um, so hopefully that, that that'd be something that we can sort of utilise to our advantage. But is there a danger in, do you think, I, want to, I use the word loosely, allies, trying to sort of, and this is something that worries me, impose what, or just offer those opportunities that we think are the right thing? So is there a danger of like saying, you must want to talk about these dreadful issues rather than to actually just want to really do a really good game? Yeah, I think that's always been a balance that I've um I've had in in any interviews that I've done actually. Um yeah, I I did have an interview. I think it was like a women's uh National Women's Day interview and they kind of said like, "Oh, what's the hardest thing about being a woman in tech?" And I said this question. Yes. Which is probably a bit cheeky of me. But um yeah, there's a danger to um literally just um reducing a professional down to their demographic than 
Um, and, and then that being the only thing that they're able to have a voice on, that in itself is its own kind of limiting factor. Yeah. And I think if you really want to bring more people onto the like project or like behind the microphone, as you say, it's, it, it's one of those things, it has to be a, a multi-step process. It has to be, um, there has to be a lot more work done than I think a lot of people initially think. Like getting someone involved who's not from the same background as you is great, but making sure that that's being done in a way that's supportive and um, empowering of that person takes yeah. a lot more nuance and a lot more kind of like, yeah, introspection and working out, yeah, how it kind of can work. Um, I think it's that in a longer term sense, you know, because it's very... Um, like I used to do events management and it's very easy to kind of look at a lineup of speakers and say, oh, that's diverse. That isn't diverse. But we had an issue where um, with one of the events that I was involved with, the only diverse um, panel of speakers was on a panel about diversity. <laughs> and it was like, well, yes, it is yeah. going to be a diverse panel of speakers talking about diversity, but there should be diversity in all of the topics that are being discussed. Yeah. And I think what you're kind of saying there is like that. It happens a lot at the moment where exactly. people are like, that... women in tech. And it's yes. like, cool. And like, I'm a big, you know, I'm an ambassador for women in games. And a lot of people say like, oh, shouldn't it be like everyone in games or whatever? But I think it's a balance and it's it's the actions that you're taking. And it's, you know, I very much feel that but obviously my company is looking at diversity specifically. So I'm more able and more comfortable to talk about that yeah. topic in interviews because it's enmeshed with what I'm doing. But I think like previously I've had a lot of moments where like I was doing an interview for my team as a team lead in a games uh, jam. So it's like a, you make a game as part of a competition. Um, and I was the only um, like woman lead and I was the only one that got asked, so what's it like being the only girl on your team? What's it like being blah, 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 blah. And I was quite young at the time, so I didn't really push back on it. But there was a little part of me that was just really sad. Because <laughs> it, it, in that moment, you go from being like, yeah, I'm the team lead, to being like, oh, I'm the girl. Yeah. You know, it's like, 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 let's erase that part and just slap this label on you. And then yeah. like, just tell us about that thing. Is it, it's almost like overcompensation in some regards, isn't it? It's weird. I think sometimes you're right, like, people with good intentions can want to give people the opportunity to speak on that matter. But sometimes in doing that, you're, you're limiting them being able to talk about anything else. Yeah. Like, for me, like, games and representation is such a kind of thing that I'm passionate about anyway. I see games as, like, the vehicle to um, trying to improve kind of representation and diversity in tech but you know for a lot of women who are working in the industry they just love what they do they love being a data analyst they love being a level designer and it's you know i think if you put yourself forward as being happy to talk about that as like an ambassador like i have that's fair but it's when people that are literally just about going about their day-to-day -day lives and they're like become a spokesperson for all women yes. and it's like yeah. yeah that's that must be that must <laughs> and that happens a lot I can, I can, <laughs> have you been asked to be a spokesperson for all male podcasters if, if the call the comes world? i'm willing to, i'm i'm willing to <laughs> if answer the, if but the role is paid. no it's not likely it's not likely um, yeah and it is i'm i'm one of these really irritating people who desperately wants to do the right thing 
no idea how to go about it. So yeah. just to go, oh, God. But um, I don't think anyone knows the right way to go about it. I don't no. think anyone can, like, always do the right thing. The big thing is, like, knowing what you don't know and acknowledging yeah. what you don't know. And I've really had to learn that because I'm white and I was teaching games development and I have to constantly be aware of the fact that a lot of the teaching content um, is, and I have to be careful when I mention about that, but like a lot of it is written by people who are white, who have particular backgrounds, mm -hmm. and a lot of academia traditionally, it's like you have to remember that there will have been a filter put on this information that you might not even be aware of. And it's, it's knowing, it's yeah, acknowledging that there's flaws. It's absolutely. acknowledging that like, yes, I am not able to fully understand the lived experience of someone else. But there's so many people that are very uncomfortable with that. They want to feel like they have an authority on things that they've not been personally involved with. And people don't want to kind of relinquish that feeling of like, I don't know, knowledge. <laughs> so yeah, I guess really to hopefully it. help you like on that kind of, I want to do the right thing, but I don't know how is the first thing is. Acknowledge is, your utter cluelessness. Yeah, and listen. Yeah, mm. listening. Like some of the best podcasters that I, I listen to, they don't get it right. But when people write in and say, hey, like I, you know, I found the terms that you used or the language that you used really uncomfortable or, you know, we don't use that term anymore. It's better to phrase it in this way. They listen. They say, yeah, we've had this letter come in. We weren't aware of this. We thank you for helping us on this journey. Yeah. But that then leads to another topic of making sure that you're being proactive about this. Um, and it's there again, I'm going to asterisk this with, you know, I can only speak on this in a really limited way. But when um, the Black Lives Matter protests were happening, all of a sudden there was a lot of well-meaning white people that were asking people of colour to help them realise what they didn't know. It's like, and it's not their responsibility to do no. that. <laughs> you know, it really it's, it's really, really not. And I feel like that has happened in a lot of other ways. Um, and I guess to bring it back to the gender thing, that happens a lot where people are like putting the pressure on women to be spokespeople for all women when they are working in these male dominated industries. Mm. And it's like, that's a lot of pressure to put on someone that yeah. maybe just liked being a data analyst or a programmer. I'm going to feel really bad about asking you the next question, now, which is going to be how quickly, if there is proper, I'm, I'm, I'm hesitating to use the word uh, balance in games teams, mm. how quickly do you think we'll see the content of games change to reflect that? that? Because I don't know if that's a question that could be answered because I think... There's a lot of challenges around like the content of games because I guess we were talking about confirmation bias before. It's like popular games get more uh, marketing. So more people see it, so more people buy it, so mm -hmm. it's popular. And it's like games that are produced by these large conglomerate companies yeah. will have larger marketing budgets. Does that mean that if it was on the same budget as a game that was of a different genre, it would be as successful? You know, it's it's hard to be able to truly know what's affecting someone's buying or what's affecting what's in the game. Because you look at something like Halo and there are things that made it really successful, 
But if you just keep recycling the same stuff, it's like, is that new game any better than the original or are people just buying it because they liked the original? Yeah. Does that make sense? I no, feel it absolutely like that was makes a bit sense. Rambly, no, it makes perfect it's... sense because, you know, I wasn't, for example, a huge fan of the Pirates of the Caribbean films, but I still bought the Lego Pirates of the Caribbean game. <laughs> okay, um, yeah. You know, um, well, I, I guess it's also, um, I guess to try and answer the question a bit better, um, so Xbox have got Game Pass, yeah, PlayStation got... have got their own version of Game Pass as well. Um, I have. I have both, actually, because it's research purposes, you see. I'm allowed to have both. Damn it. But I, I, I feel I've heard. Yeah, you need to give, become a yeah. games journalist and then you, you'll be there able you to go. do it. But um, I, I play my Xbox more um, and Game Pass has, I feel, allowed people to graze on games in a way that they haven't previously because there's so many games that I've played, even if it was just for like an hour or so just to see what it was like on Game Pass... That I might I might never have purchased because it was from a company that I'd not heard of, or it was like the screenshots looked I couldn't really tell what the game was like. And I feel like Game Pass and those kinds of subscription models pot potentially are gonna have just as much of a change on the kinds of game content that we see as representation in making them. It's really tough to be able to say what an effect having more diverse teams will have. I would really like to hope that it might have a positive effect on the community around games as well, which we haven't really talked about that much, but like the game's audience is a really yeah, I was going to tumultuous ask about... one. Yeah. <laughs> is the word I would because, use. Because, I mean, there are some things that become a scandal and, and, and I read them about things like Gamergate and I still can't for the life of me explain what the hell that was about. Um, but why? I mean, every invested fandom can get toxic. I mean, having just watched the She-Hulk finale, I, I'm imagining there's some people who are going to get very... And to, to, for me, for my money, it it's that because people, when they buy into something like a franchise, they get that sense of ownership. Hmm. Uh, and it's their story that's being, you know, they're the only person in the world who's watching this. And when it goes in a direction that perhaps they didn't expect or don't particularly care for, they can't say, oh, well, you know, let's see how this develops. I might, it might be better or, 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 or just leave it and go on to something else hmm. and maybe come back another day why do you I mean is, is that it is it that sense of investment that I mean I've never does it affect I mean this is another terribly horrible gendered question but but is that a male thing I don't I really don't know I don't think so Good. Um, because like you could look at literally any activity in the world and you'll find a fandom for it like, mm. regardless of gender, like, there are people who compete internationally at crochet. Right. Yeah. So I think it's... it's I, don't, I don't think it's tied to it. I think so, some of the ingredients to the challenges that we've got in the games community now stem back to, um, you know, the 80s, where tech and gaming was very male-dominated at the time, and it was also very niche. It was one of those hobbies that, like, a few people shared, and when they found someone else that was really into it too, they got really excited, and it created this kind of sense of community. Um, and there seems to be some kind of... There's, uh, people feel like as the gaming community becomes more diverse... Um, 
something is lost from the experience of being a gamer. I obviously don't feel like that and I don't think everyone feels like that, but that's definitely like a theme to it. Um, and I think like women's safety and the safety of like marginalized genders and like underrepresented people is a concern and it's a concern that I wouldn't have if I was working in another industry. Yeah. Um, I've started a company that's specifically looking at diversity and I worry that that will place a certain amount of um, a target on my back as being someone who's saying, yeah, like I'd really like some games to be made in a way that like I would like to play them. That sounds, that sounds a remarkably uncontroversial thing to say. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's market forces. If there's a demand, then at some point there'll be supply. Um, I don't know why. I mean, I'm not saying you're wrong. Please don't no, think I'm saying you're wrong. No. I'm saying it, it just baffles me yeah. that people could be threatened by that uh, and find that you, you know, if you can't find it, you make it yourself. Um, yeah. This seems but a perfectly it, it, logical it way of, to go about things. It, yeah, but it, it's pervasive in so many different things. But I think it's just um, for a long time, like, I didn't really like speaking out about particular games topics in a public way um, because I was scared about the way that people would react to it. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, you mentioned Gamergate. That was whilst I was at uni. So I think it was, it was around 2014. And, you know, people's families were harassed. There was all sorts of like threats against people's like physical safety and the, the other people in their lives, people lost their jobs. Like, it's not, um, I think sometimes people think because it's like video games, it's not, there's maybe, it's maybe not as serious, but it is a real yeah. concern. And yeah, it's, it's quite hard sometimes if you're having a conversation with someone and you say, oh, well, no, I didn't do that because, you know, um, I guess like a, an example I could give is I was at a tech conference um, in East Anglia and one of the guests, the keynote speakers was talking about the benefits that he got from hitchhiking. Right. It's not really rec replicable. No. But no one really, like, when I said that, like, in conversation with someone, they also were a bit like, I don't see your point. And it's that whole thing where... How could they, they just... Okay, sorry, just, I, I saw your point immediately. Yeah, well, it's, it's that just, doesn't make me better, I just think... But there was just a part of me that when I was seeing the talk, I was like, I get where this person is coming from and like I respect their experiences and what they're trying to share. But the fact that they weren't acknowledging that it wasn't because they kept being like really encouraging and like, and you can do this too. And you should have these experiences. And like, I got so much from it. And it it just I just felt really sad because I was like, yeah, but I... all that enthusiasm kind of not really very well directed. Yeah, just, just I think that's like a big difference is like, you know, is have knowing what you don't know and it's like you can't make these massive generalizations about particular things and be like yeah everyone should just do it because it's like not everyone is in a position to feel safe while they're doing that or whichever just the one on about uh, thinking about uh, lgbtq plus um characters in games hmm. just to sort of switch it around in a different angle um the struggle for uh, female representation both you know, in and out, uh, behind the scenes and in, in the actual games itself, uh, proper representation is ongoing and extremely hard fought. And, and I think we've sort of covered how it's it's the pro 
progress is sort of, call it incremental is, yeah. is, is nowhere near accurate. But in terms of LGBTQ, I have seen games that have those characters, but they are either, again, hypersexualized, you know, for the male gaze, or they are played for laughs mm. um, for heterosexual men, mainly. Um, how are we going to do anything so, in that? I guess to try and like bring this back to a more positive outlook. Good. Uh, I think one of the the things that makes me really excited is access to making games, and particularly being able to express yourself through video games is much much more um, accessible. So the cost of um, making a game, depending on how you want to make it, uh, Unreal Engine and Unity, which are games engines, mm -hmm. which is the software that you use to build a game, both of them are on free models. So you can pay for like particular features yep. or um, Epic, I think, with Unreal Engine, they take a cut if you actually sell something commercially. Mm -hmm. But in terms of like being able to use these tools, it's just so much easier um, even than when I was... Um, kind of just out of uni a lot of games and just you still have to pay for mm -hmm. um the software um blender which is a 3d modeling software completely free open source um and so many people are kind of releasing software or tools for free to allow people to make these things and i think that is um one of the more um like positive motivating things to think about is that the more people that have access to the tools, the more people that will be able to represent themselves in games and see themselves in games. Um, there are some particular funding um, avenues for underrepresented founders. So if you're making a game that's covering particular issues, um, there's the Wings Fund, um, which is global, and they're specifically looking to make games which are, um, yeah, covering topics like queer topics or are made games, excuse me, that are made um, by queer community. Um, yeah, so I think it's that it's another example of where you really need people involved in the creation process for there to be true representation. Um, yeah, because up like... until this point, it yeah. hasn't been great. No. I mean, how would you like to see? I'm going to start. Uh, how would you like to see uh, the Norwich, the East Anglian gamer community develop? Game uh, game uh, creation community develop. Yeah. So, um, kind of as I touched on beforehand, like I would really love to see um, funding opportunities in this region for games companies. There's there's some kind of talk of creative tech, creative digital businesses, but I still think there's a bit of a blind spot when it comes to games. Um, I'm sure you know this, but some listeners may not know that the UK games industry is larger than the UK film, television and music industries combined. Mm -hmm. And yet it's not being really focused on in a proper sector way by local authorities to think, okay, well, here's this industry which has survived the impacts of the pandemic and is continuing to grow exponentially in the UK and is attracting international creative talent. We're just not going to consider it for opportunities because we don't have in-house expertise. It's like 
we can't keep kind it's, of falling on that. <laughs> we like, need to. Yeah. And I'm not saying that there won't be any in future. No, no. And I've um, had some really good conversations recently. But in terms good. of like where I want to see it going, I no, that, I'd just, really love that. I'm talking to Tim Robinson of Tech East in a few weeks, and that's definitely uh, a message I'll take to him. But it, it's it's <laughs> oh no, I feel bad now no, that Tim's no. going to get roasted on uh, it. No, I don't. I, don't, I, don't I think do, he's quite I, supportive. I of do, oh no, Tim would be. I know yeah. Tim would be. Uh, I don't do roastings. Um, I don't have it in me. I'm not. I'm, uh, but um, not Jeremy Paxman. No, no, no. I'm, I, I, I wouldn't even. It wouldn't even count as Mrs. Merton. I don't think. There's a there's a dated reference. More like Alan Partridge, maybe. But um, that'd be local, yeah. Yeah, it would be. Um, it feels to me like with the screen sector, TV, uh, film, they know what that is because they've watched telly and seen have seen a film, mm. and they think they know and they've got a good handle on it and they know what it's all involved. But there's a bit more mystique about from, from you know the average person in the street who, who yes they probably sit at a computer all day, but how it works is something for you know IT. Yeah, and I think I've, I've had conversations with people where they tell me that they they don't play video games, and then I ask them if they play solitaire, and they say, oh yeah, every day. It's like, well, then you, then you play video games. And I'm but reporting it, you to HR. You know, yes. it's a bit, yeah. But it's, it's one of those things where, like, you know, there's still such a barrier to people um, realising that they are just as much engaging with the games industry as they are with TV and film. Mm. Um, it's just maybe in less of a kind of straightforward way. But, yeah, it's, it is... Um, I think things are shifting. Things are getting much better um, but I was lucky enough to um, the forum approached Norfolk Game Developers in 2014, actually, um, to have a bit of an input on their games festival. Oh, yeah. Um, so for the first two years of that, um, I was working with them to bring like local developers um, and then they took it on in-house and they, they run it themselves now completely. Oh, brilliant. But, you know, that was... Um, What's that, eight years ago? Yeah, about that. Um, and at the time, I remember thinking, like, oh, maybe if we can get this festival up and running, like, maybe that will be the thing that convinces people locally that this can be a really thriving industry. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm really only now starting to see shifts where some game developers have, like, moved to the region and are running their businesses here, co-working spaces, um, are kind of, like, open and interested in games. And... You know, I feel like we've got all of the ingredients. Just, They're all there. We just need someone either joining it up or like a bit more support from, um, yeah, from the kind of, you know, even like visit Norwich as a thing. Yeah. Like, is there a way that we can incorporate, you know, creative technology or games into that? Like it. so often people think that these things are at either end of a spectrum and they're really not. Like games aren't this kind of... Anti-social, hyper-violent, hyper-sexualized activities. Yeah, people do put that that kind of mental distinction, don't they, between mobile? I've had games people have moral and... arguments with me about me being involved with video games. Like people think that it's amoral for me to be working in the games industry. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's it's like it, um, it's the, the tape can't the, the recording like can't a... get my very sort of 
quizzical <laughs> expression as if to say it's not a visual medium with the, with the, but yeah. no it's not really with the, with the vast range of games you can go from you know being a firefighter or yeah. you know or like an animal chef. crossing where yeah. you play as an adorable tiny animal that lives on an island you know yeah. it's that but but that doesn't get through um, the kind of the mainstream reporting or the general news that's reported on in games usually it's sensationalist you know content about something and it's not to say that games don't have their own challenges and issues. We've literally been talking yes. about them for <laughs> this for entire hour, episode. Yeah. But it's it it's just yeah, it, it's really um I guess it's a hearts and minds exercise as much as it is yeah. um like a funding, you know, infrastructure. So, I mean, I interviewed quite early in the podcast Asa Burrows from SKC Games oh, in Haverhill. Yeah. Uh, and hopefully going back to talk to him some more in the future. Um, He's got I, he, some very exciting plans. He has, hasn't he? And he came to, uh, when I, I did some well, work with the LEP um, in, at the Conservative Party's conference last year, the one that was actually successful. Um, no comment. <laughs> and, and, um, he, but Asa came and did a, a talk that was so heartfelt, so wonderful, and put all his artwork and his pull-ups all around the room, and that was just brilliant. It was, and that was the bit that the the media actually latched onto, and it was it was kind of like in Haverhill, what a surprise! And that was it was both sort of uplifting that he got the attention and sad that the the it was like why yeah, not Haverhill? Kind of look at why this not oddity, and it's like yeah. well no, because exactly like why not Haverhill? Because when I spoke to Asa, you know, he was saying like it's it's fairly close to Cambridge, it's got really good links, the internet's great, the building's fantastic that he's in at the epicenter, uh, epicenter isn't it? Yes, and um, yeah, and I think I think that's the big thing is like I'm saying, you know, we've got all the ingredients, we just need someone to kind of acknowledge that digital creative games businesses can be in Norfolk. Like people still come Sorry, up to I'm, me I'm, at events and say, "I'm sitting there wondering <laughs> what kind of event could we put on where we bring things people like the county councils, because they're about to get a lot more uh, in Norfolk and Suffolk certainly, uh, a lot more, uh, you know, uh, power and responsibility and, and hopefully funding." And you've got, you know, uh, you've got Cambridge and the Cambridge. There's lots of people in Cambridge who are, are interested in being in this space. Uh, you've got huge tech companies moving in, like Roku. Um, and they're you know starting to produce their their own product you know their own movies strange times and how we can best bring them all together and i'm not saying that this sounds like a job for eastern promise because i'm, I'm like <laughs> i'm actually really conscious of what you said earlier in that just focus on the day-to-day -day and don't you know don't get distracted <laughs> with flights of fancy but maybe that's something that i think that's know, the problem when you're passionate isn't yes, it, you it can is. So easily it be so like, is. oh, but I want to do this. And and I was like... just thinking about my friend, my friend Susie, uh, Sue Simmons, at, at B, who's now at BT, thinking, this sounds like a job for Sue. Sue would love this, not just because she's, <laughs> but cause she's really good at this kind of job. Mm. And um, you know, I mean, who knows? Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll see. I'll have some conversations and, and maybe come back to you, and we'll see what we can do. And it'd be yeah, led by you, and not a, a, say, a, as I've said repeatedly, a middle. <laughs> white man trying to tell women what he thinks is good for them or yeah. gamers or, or the gaming community what he thinks is good for them because uh, you know uh... yeah well I, th I guess I don't I don't know if I should say this in the, the content of the episode but like I was having spoken to you I was really impressed the way that you approached video games because I've spoken to people in the past and a lot of people that don't have a knowledge of the industry or like have worked in it they're again 
when they want to do an interview with you, it, it could be very like, it could be a case of like, why are teenage boys addicted to Minecraft? And it's well, like, not. it's just this, you know, it, there's, um, so often you'll have people that wouldn't, they either like wouldn't take it seriously or like they wouldn't um, be interested in a way that's kind of like genuine. They'd just be like, cool, let's just yeah. tick some boxes. And it's, I mean, yeah. I love, I love playing video games. I, I've, I, I, I've got a sort of a big collection of sort of older titles. And I don't have enough time, as much time to play as like. But I've just been playing uh, Marvel's Avengers for the first time, which is uh, my my aging gaming PC has just got enough oomph to run it. <laughs> and you sort of watch it, and you think, yes, you sort of flick between heroes of different genders and different plot lines. And uh, I mean, I, from my point of view, it seems very balanced. I, I don't know that people who are, you might think differently, but you're still aware <laughs> that the kind of Yes, it's the you know the the, the skin tight lycra problem, and the, you know, would that oh, be an God, issue? Yeah. And did you see the uh, fan art that people made swapping round the characters and their poses? Yes, yes. Yeah. So there was a video oh, games version of that actually, which was run by um, some of the people <clears throat> that were involved with Women in Games France. Um, they they made this campaign and they swapped the animation rigs of male and female characters in video games. And one of the ones that they did was Batman and Catwoman. Uh, and it's ridiculous. Huh. Looking at Batman, like, purring and, like, Physical just touching his body it's and being like... weird. is It's bizarre. And I used it in a lesson because I didn't actually have to say anything. That alone said enough to be like, that, like this is why we need, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I thought, we need like, the... more people involved because... No sane person would act like Catwoman is acting in that scene, but it doesn't seem ridiculous until you put that animation rig onto Batman. Yeah, and then suddenly it becomes ridiculous, and it's like, okay, well, what's that? To, you know, we'll ha let's analyze that, and you know, yeah, are those all right? Because yeah. you've got at least you know someone who's standing in the sort of cutscenes while you're waiting, as you sort of you've got Black Widow unloading and unloading pistols and sort of making sure everything is you know, all the weapons are concealed properly. But it, it doesn't seem that, you know, that hypersexualized to me. But I don't know. But, you know, play, you play the modern version of Lara Croft. Though. Yeah, it's it such is. a minefield because, like, there's games that I love. So, like, I love Mass Effect as a series. Mass Effect 2, there is, like, a running meme of the fact that the camera is always basically focusing on her behind. <laughs> like, even when they're having conversations, which yeah. normally it would be, like, head and shoulders to head and shoulders kind of mm. camera shots hers are just always like that if they're focusing on someone else it'll just be like well let's just look at the back of you whilst that person's speaking right. but i love that game you know it's like there's no it, it's just kind of everywhere and you kind of you find yourself having to try and navigate it but it's yeah it's, perhaps it's a minefield <laughs> perhaps that's why the lego games are so successful you just you're basically always playing as a as a little plastic figure whatever you're doing however yeah. it's constructed um, yeah, but... Lego games do um, split screen really well. Uh, my wife and I used to try and play split screen, and it just got so annoying. It triggered so many of us. Would you come on? I'm waiting to go in there. I come. Uh, <laughs> Hurry yeah. up. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it's a, it, it's it's always a bit rough. But I'll it's... tell you a really good co-op game to try. What's that? Uh, it's called. Um... Oh no, I've just forgotten. That's annoying. Um, it takes two. Rip. Okay, I'll look it up. I got. It's I, one got of the, the best games that I've played, uh, and you can tell it's my, made by people that just love what they're doing because um, it's the story of husband and wife. They're having marital challenges. 
that's not really a spoiler because it's right at the beginning of the game. And then through the process of the game, um, they are transformed into these toys and they have to try and work their way back to kind of being real, human real again. But in order to do that, they have to complete these challenges. But it's it's fantastic because each character has their own abilities and you have to combine those abilities to solve problems similar like you do in um, Lego. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it, with this, it's very much a case of it's a, it is a two-player game predominantly. I think you can play it single-player and swap between them, but there's some stuff which just doesn't quite work as well. Yeah. But um, it's a beautifully made game, and I'd really recommend it for co-op because um, it... it because it is a game about like marital therapy, I guess, like <laughs> couples therapy, it also gets you to have to work together. And like when you were saying that you were snapping about like her not doing something quickly enough, it made me remember when I was playing with my husband. And we were both <laughs> like, yeah, those moments where like he was very calm and I was like, Duh! I kept dying and vice versa. And my, so. my, my daughter started playing. She, she's she's too young to play it, but she saw it on YouTube and now she's. She wanted to play so all right then. Two Point Hospital. Oh gosh. See, Two Point Hospital is based on one of the games that got me into video games, which is Theme Hospital. Mm-hmm. Did you ever play that? Uh I no, I played Theme Park. Okay. Like so the original Theme so Hospital. Old. It's just like Two Point Hospital has the same sense of humour and it is it's like a kind of spiritual successor type thing. And Theme Hospital is where you have to run a hospital. And all of the um, ailments are just ridiculous. Ridiculous, yeah. And like one I remember as a kid was bloaty head syndrome, where all the people would come in and they'd have massive bloated heads, and the doctor would just be pricking their heads to. I know, Two Point Hospital has Freddie (laughs) Mercury syndrome, and and they're all turning into Freddie Mercury. Yeah, instead of Elvis, which is the original. But it's the the voiceovers in the hospital. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, my husband's played it quite a lot. I haven't had a chance to like play that much of it. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's the, yeah. Same the, one is the, the university one's quite good as yes, well. Yes, that, because that that this is a bit. I'll cut this bit out. But Two Point <laughs> Hospital got taken down off the Game Pass, so my daughter had to go for two to um, oh campus. Two Point Campus, that's the one. Yeah, uh, which is just as funny, you know. <laughs> the voiceover's yes, great. To... Like that, you know, like term is finished. Yes, so we'd that... like to remind students you did come here deliberately. Yeah, <laughs> you uh, will not be receiving a refund. <laughs> yes. like, that was yeah. Some definite kind of uh, undertones. So, last question, um, and it's I, I do sometimes try and do a bit of a left field uh, one. Um, one platform, if, if you can only choose one platform and one game for your desert island, your desert island games, one platform. We'll work out how you can power it. We'll have solar panels or something. Yeah. Uh, and one game, what would they be? Probably, it would probably have to be Fallout Four. Because that's the game that I've spent weeks worth of hours playing. Um, I I'm a huge Fallout fan. Um, I love the world that they've constructed. I love the sense of humor and the environmental storytelling in it. So like the world telling you a story of what's happened is just it's just fantastic. And I just I just like wandering around. Um, and considering the amount of hours that I've played it. I'm still finding things that I hadn't realised before, little environments or um, just even uh, for a while I was kind of doing this thing where like I would take screenshots every time I saw something that I knew the developers had set up deliberately. So like 
there's some there was something where they had like a teddy bear with a knife sitting in a toilet with like a light above it and it was there was literally no point to it it was just in one of the toilet stalls like mm-hmm. in a building but like it was that thing where i was like i know that someone like did that because <laughs> it was a thursday they were, like, they were they were the teddy bears are like a thing in fallout 4 like you'll find them in all sorts of environments like there's one where you can see it like it's about to do like surgery on another bear like it's but it's it's that whole i love that element to it and like as much as it's a post apocalyptic game so maybe it's not the most uplifting thing to play if i'm on a desert <laughs> island like there's a part of me that just it loves could be that. worse i'm on a nice desert island and it's at least yeah. it's not an apocalypse true so true, would that be on a pc or xbox xbox yeah, you yeah. Do nice right robin milton thank you very much i wish you every success and if, if eastern you. promise can help we shall i shall do all we can i feel like we're gonna have big plans now i do say this an awful lot But it truly was a huge pleasure to chat with Robin. And more than that, there was a lot more to say about the sector and the industry, not least the recent announcement on the Create Growth Fund. I'm looking forward to bringing industry voices from across the region around a table soon, and I'll be recording that and sharing it with you. Meanwhile, if you want to hear more from Robin, then she'll be talking on this subject as part of the Norwich Science Festival on Thursday the 16th of February 2023 at the Forum in Norwich from 5pm to 6pm. The event is free, but you will need to book your place by going to bipcnorfolk.eventbrite.com. You can also visit the website at fairer.games. The tech sector in the east of England is wide and varied. Suffolk has BT at Adastral Park, alongside Innovation Martlesham. Norfolk has an artisan feel to its tech sector, and its trailblazers are pushing the boundaries with blockchain and Web3 technologies. And Cambridge is home to huge global names like Arm, AstraZeneca and a more recent arrival, the streaming giant Roku. Roku's new offices on Cambridge Science Park, their largest building outside the USA, really do have to be seen to be believed. With terraces, a huge refectory and a stylish feel more redolent of a boutique hotel than a tech company, Roku is clearly embracing a new way of working and looking for tech talent in the region that wants the same. And if you want to gather the east of England's tech talent under your roof, you call Kent Height. Few know the sector as well as he, and Kent Heights tech and beer events give founders, entrepreneurs and more the ability to network, talk directly to the sector and get the chance to win a bottle of bubbly as an added incentive. Roku clearly agreed, and I went along to see Kent working his magic at their offices. Good evening, Oh my goodness, there we go. We got there in the end. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to Tech and Beer. God damn it, this building is amazing, right? Oh my God, I want to work here, except I'm not smart enough, so they won't give me a job. Um, But there you go. Um, Welcome to Roku, Tech and Beer at Roku. This is amazing. So we're really, really pleased to be here. 
if you've not been to a tech of beer before, um, my name's Kent. I kind of do this whole thing. This is my jam. After the main event, I caught up with both Kent and Tim Granger of Roku. First, I chatted with Kent about his motivation behind the Tech and Beer events. How many Tech and Beers is this now? Have you lost count? How many Tech and Beers? We started in 2018, and then obviously we had a, a big old chunk of time with the pandemic hit us. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that was hard. Seems like another world now. It's come back. It's really come back. Well, for you, yes, definitely. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's been, it's been uh, you know, I think people are really keen to kind of get out again. And we've got such a, um, such a valuable community event, you know, and it brings like-minded people together, you know, and it gives everyone a great opportunity. People that work in science, technology, digital innovation, engineering, they can all come together and talk to other really smart people like they are. You know, um, and it just, you know, I think that that's been missing from a lot of people's lives while the pandemic's been on. Mm -hmm. And it feels like only now, really, they're really coming back. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, it's, it's fantastic to have you based here in the east of England. How wide do you take Tech and Beer across? Is it still in the east? Or have you, I know you've had plans at one point to go to the continent. Yeah, well, so obviously, yeah, we, so we, we, um, we're, we started in Cambridge um, and it's been kind of, that's our stomping ground, that's our home. And it's been a phenomenal success here in Cambridge. Um, we've obviously operated in Norwich as well. We've done a tech and beer up in Norwich. Um, we'd like to go further afield before the pandemic. We were actually due to go to Barcelona. Uh, let's have a think. Barcelona, Dublin, oh. uh, Berlin. And, oh. and, and the week of lockdown, we were supposed to be in Amsterdam. We had a a thousand tech professionals in Amsterdam signed up to come to that tech and beer. But unfortunately, you know, COVID had other plans for us. That's a kick in the nuts, eh? That really hurt. Um, <laughs> it really hurt. And because I first encountered you at um, the epicenter at Haverhill and I've got, got, got a drop. Uh, I forgot we did one there. Yeah, we did um, one there as well. <laughs> and if, if, uh, if uh, the Innovation Centre Knowledge Gateway at the University of Essex are listening, what a fantastic venue that would be. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Why do you do it? Why do I do it? Don't um, say money. No, I, it's not for money at all. It's not. I wish it. I if, it, it yeah. <laughs> yeah, if it were, I, I'd, I'd be uh, very disappointed. Um, so I lived in Budapest for four years, um, not that long ago, um, and being a native speaker and actually kind of being not too bad on a microphone, um, I was asked to start hosting local tech and startup-based events in Budapest. That it then extended into the rest of Eastern Europe, um, and the creativity. Uh, and the sense of community there was mind-blowing. It was just, it was in, so inspiring. Um, <clears throat> and then when I became a dad, I moved uh, back to the UK and uh, settled in Ely um, and started working uh, from the Science Park from the Bradfield Centre in Cambridge. Um, I kept looking for an event that had the same kind of energy uh, as the ones that I'd experienced in Eastern Europe, Central mm. and Eastern Europe, but there was nothing. And so I just thought, you know what, let's put a couple of grand into starting our own event and just see what happens, just for fun. And it yeah. really was just for fun. Do you know what, that is a very, uh, you know, you and I have a very similar story yeah. here. And, but what I, I, I admire, um, and I don't want this to sound like a bro, you know, a bromance podcast, because I did one of those at mm -hmm. um, Fuel Studios a couple of weeks ago with James Adams, um, is that you, you never let up. Your energy sort of 
keeps, no matter what was thrown at you up there. And you've had, you know, in fairness, to deliver perhaps, you know, one of the, I don't want to say strangest, but there are not many people in this country who've had to do what you've had to do this evening, which is announce the death um, mm -hmm. of uh, Her Majesty the Queen. Now, I'm not going to dwell too deeply on that because that must have been a difficult decision for you when to do that and how to do that. But mm. just to, to go back, I mean, what does it mean to you to get the call from someone like Roku and to say, come and do an event here? And that must, that must be like, wow. And then you come to this building, which is incredible testament to the tech sector in Cambridge. Mm. What, does that, what does that mean to you to get, to get that kind of call? I mean, to be quite honest, I mean, we've worked at some really big companies. Amazon was also a company that we, we did a lot of events there as well. Shh, you know. don't, be careful with that word. Why? The, the, the shutters will come down and they'll be upon us and we'll be in the basement with Hessian sacks on our heads. Okay, <laughs> possibly. <laughs> but no, we've, we've worked with some big companies, you know, we've worked with some really innovative companies, you know, and for me, I mean, yeah, it's, you, it's great to be working with Roku. It's great to be working with all the big companies that we work with and it's great to be able to support them in sharing what they do with the world and help bringing you know, the community to them, you know, whether mm. it's Dark Trace just over the road from where we are now, massive cybersecurity company, whether it's Amazon, whether it's Roku, you know, we've worked with all of these big companies, you know, but, you know, for me, uh, one of the challenges is finding tech companies that actually, or not even tech companies, innovative companies that really want to support that community element. And yeah. so when companies like Roku, come along and they say we see the value in bringing the tech community together in this space you know as well as obviously the very obvious kind of benefit to them of having potential hires in their building potential new stakeholders whatever you know the pr aspect you know i'm always delighted when that happens but i'm surprised it doesn't happen more yeah you know it really does surprise me because it's not like we're charging thousands and thousands of pounds to run these events we we break even pretty much mm -hmm. on most yeah. on most of them, you know. We pretty much break even financially, you know. And it surprises me that a lot of organisations don't, innovative organisations, innovator organisations don't grab it and say we need this, mm. you know. Um, we even had uh, recently at our last uh, event, the uh, summer party, we had a company that actually sent people from Canada. Really? To the UK to sponsor and be a part of the event. They're a company called Ecobee. Um, they make uh, smart thermostats and those kind of things. Yeah. Um, and they've actually asked us, will you please bring tech and beer to Toronto? Oh, wow. What you a know? coup. What now, a coup. Well, yeah, but, and this is the thing. It, you know, it's almost like, you know, in America, in Canada, in these kind of countries, uh, Tel Aviv has also asked us that, um, to go over there as well. We've been asked to go to Tel Aviv. You know, these organizations, these areas, these countries, they see the value in it a lot mm. more, you know? Yeah. And so, so when, I, when a company local, you know, to the region, like Roku, like Amazon, like uh, Darktrace, whatever, and St. John's Innovation Center, or Park, I should say, when they want to work with us, we're very excited. Mm. Because the people of the, 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 the innovators, the, the guys who are doing the work, the men and women that actually do the tech, the science and everything else, they're an amazing bunch of people. You know, they are just so incredibly interesting to talk to. You know, you'll meet such a diverse range of people and engaging with them in a really positive, collaborative, non-salesy, no agenda kind of environment yeah. is just so fulfilling.
That's, and that's why I do it. Yeah, that's amazing because uh, it's amazing you say that because that's been my experience as well. I went to Ideaspace here in the city, uh, which is going to be you know, when we start up again, because we'll obviously take a pause. But when we start up again, it's going to be uh, my next interview. And I expected it to be very airy in Cambridge, very, very aloof, very elite. And it wasn't, it's the most, probably the most cuddly tech space I've ever been into. You know, there's, everyone's bringing homemade cake and there's a bell to ring. Uh, I, I say this a lot, but I, I, and I was completely, my expe expectations were totally subverted. And but there were loads of people in those, in various tech companies, innovators, doing business with the world. And it's like you said, Tel Aviv, Toronto, doing business with the world. What conversations are you having internally to the region? Not many, if any. And it, it, it really strikes me that, and you are a key part in making this right, we really don't know, as the East of England, our own stories. Because we don't know enough about ourselves and the fantastic things that are going on here. And, you know, all credit to you for, for being a key part in turning that round and telling those stories, making sure people get the chance to hear those stories. Yeah. And, and um, you know, uh, do, do you have any reflections on that? And, and, with, and, uh, and then I'll let you get back to the... Because <laughs> yeah. you've just put a, an, an amazing stint in. And, uh, yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, I, th I, I think that there are a lot of amazing stories. I think that, you know, historically, you know, obviously Cambridge is uh, a, a very academic city, you know, and I think that, you know, for a long time, you know, and this might be controversial, it's been quite elitist, mm. particularly around science, technology, innovation kind of based businesses. It's, it's felt quite... Well, it's coming out on the way. Cut this one out. It's felt quite... Um, it felt quite elitist. And for me, that was actually what m drove me to, 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 to launch Tech and Beer. Because a lot of the meetings, uh, a lot of the networking events that I was going to, they were just, there was no energy. It was a lot of middle-aged white guys talking about how much money they had and the size of their car. Yeah. Do you know how much Bitcoin I've got? Mm -hmm. It was that kind of thing. And I just, it just drove me insane. There is so much talent out there, and it's, it's just so creative, you know. Um, and there wasn't a place to bring those people together. You know, those are the people who are our future. Those are the innovators that are changing the world. And those are the people that I want to connect and engage with. Those are the people that I want to bring together in a collaborative and positive space where they can meet new people and between them, maybe forge new innovations and new ways of thinking and new ideas. You know, and that's what drives me. Um, I can't top that. Kent Height, for God's sake, please keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> we need you. We need you telling the good stories about the region. Thank you ever so much. Nice one. It's always a pleasure to chat with Kent, as it was to talk to Tim Granger of Roku's leadership team. Although, as you're about to discover, Roku do things a little differently. Get your job title, first of all, so I make sure I get that right in the introduction. Uh, so I'm a senior director at Roku, but one of the interesting things about Roku is we don't really like to use... I, I don't introduce myself by my job title. So That is a very interesting question. So, so you notice uh, in my talk, I, yeah. didn't, I didn't say my job title. You didn't? Nobody said their job titles. Oh, maybe a few, but the... I think the important thing is it's more about your contribution to the company mm -hmm. and what people know that you know. So yeah. it's that peer-to-peer -peer relationship that's far more important than, well, this is my job title. Yeah. I mean, I always, when I do these, these sorts of interviews, I always worry I'm coming across, uh, you know, a bit, a, a bit sort of fawning and sycophantic, and I'm not, not trying to be. But genuinely, really, 
what a different feel coming into this building cool. that you get, you know, fr fr from your average. I mean, I've been in lots of tech spaces and, and they're fantastic and they're lovely. But, you know, you're just talking about a fairly sort of, I don't use the word flat structure, but, you know, sort of I, based on who you are, not what you do uh, and yeah. your, your value to the company in, in, in the person that you are, not the, the, the role you're inhabiting, which is a really, really good, good thing. But uh, what a fabulous building you have here. You know, it's, it, it feels more like a, a you know, high-end hotel than an, actual, than an actual place of work. And you just think, ooh, like Ken, you think, oh, what can I do to get in here? But um, you've, you, you've, been, you've been here since, obviously, Cambridge. Roku has been in Cambridge for quite some time, but I, I had no idea. So what is the purpose of this building? You, you alluded to it in your speech. Hmm. It's, all, it's, it's about the experience side uh, of the product. But what, 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 what do you do here? <laughs> is, is that, that's the question I'm groping for. That is a great question. So, yeah, we started Cambridge in 2014. Uh, we had seven people, and I was one of those seven people. Um, of those seven, six still work for Roku, so we lost one. Uh, he went to teach in Japan, English as a foreign language, and we can't really compete with that if people want to no, no. Do, do those life choices. So ever since the start, we've been a new products team. And so new products is still the largest part of the, the office in Cambridge. And so those are the engineering teams that create, design, release uh, new products. So we work with the factories to make sure they can be manufactured. Uh, we get the quality levels right. We make sure that customers are going to have a great experience when they first plug them in. There's a lot of certifications, obviously, new country support and new feature support. Um, so that, that's, that's the mainstay of the Cambridge office, is, mm -hmm. is new product development. And so why Cambridge? I mean, it seems like an obvious question. It's Cambridge. But there's, there's all, there, there other, you know, other tech-heavy you know, tech places, Bristol, Oxford, are available. You, you have got your offices in Cardiff and Manchester and, and elsewhere in the world. But you, know, you, you were saying in your speech, this is the largest. This why? is the largest outside. This is the, the largest, US, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so this is the largest Roku office outside the US. Um, it, it's been going the longest, it's the most established. Cambridge has an awesome set of coincidence. It has the university, which means you get a, a constant attraction of really high talent. But you've also got enough other companies that are based in Cambridge that people come here not just, not just for the university, but for other companies. Um, so the likes of Arm and Qualcomm, XCSR and, and Samsung are here and Apple and Google and Amazon, you know, it goes, the list goes on. Mm -hmm. And so you've got that concentration of really high-skilled, high-talented, motivated people. Um, and so it, it, was, it was a bit of a no-brainer when yes. Roku wanted to start an office in the UK <laughs> and it was, hey, let's you know, go where the people are. So yeah, that, that's why, why Cambridge. Yeah, well, my beat obviously covers uh, the east of England of which Cambridge is a part. And I know there are those who was like, you know, feel, feel Cambridge is kind of this other walled kingdom, uh, which uh, the rest of the region doesn't doesn't really have, have anything to do with. I think that's wrong. I think that Cambridge is Cambridge. And when Cambridge does well, we all do. You know, the, re the region does well as a whole. There's opportunities aplenty. And, you know, talking to people tonight who've come from Ely and that's not just Kent. Uh, you know, I, I, it, it's easier for me to get here from Norfolk than it is for me to get to other parts of Norfolk. I'm here much, much faster. Um, what is your, what links are you having? I mean, you're talking a lot about, uh, about you know, you're looking for that talent and, and uh, obviously you're a global company, so your focus isn't gonna be solely on, on the east of England, but what are those links you have or you're hoping to have with the tech sector 
outside of Cambridge in Norwich because you've got you know the universities there, uh, Norwich University Arts. You've got all sorts of smaller startups. You've got Adastral Park at Martlesham. You must, you know, you'll know about that. So. We do have quite a lot of people that live very locally and, and live in Cambridge and, and Cambridge is their bubble and, and this is where they want to work. But we also have a lot of people that do commute in that come from, from farther afield. So we've got people from Welling Garden City, we've got people, as you say, from Ely, uh, people from Newmarket and beyond um, that recognise the value in, in coming to a place like Roku. The other thing to say is we are embracing more a hybrid style of working, enabling yeah. people to work from home some days a week. We still think there's a huge benefit to teams working in a single space and being able to be super collaborative to support each other, especially onboarding new talent. It's always great to see yeah. people face to face. And recruiting in COVID has been particularly challenging for that. Of course. But it, it enables us to widen that recruitment pool. So people that are further afield, you know, we are definitely open to that because, yeah, we, we can work it out. We can work out what's suitable for them, what, what's going to work for their team, so their team can be effective at Roku. I mean, you, you've built um, a very welcoming and, uh, you know, conducive atmosphere. So people will want to come to this building and work. But, you know, it, it's really helpful, I think, to, for many people to, that you, you're open to those, those alternative approaches, which, which, which would be greatly valued. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, it depends on the individual. Mm -hmm. um, we need people to be effective wherever they are. Uh, and some people just don't have the space to work at home. And so it's great to, to offer them you know, the working space in the office. It needs to be great for the team. Some teams need to share equipment. And that's, that's super hard if you've got to drive around people's houses to drop stuff off, which <laughs> yes. I remember having to do during COVID. Um, so yeah, it, it, needs to be, it needs to work for them, it needs to work for the team. Um, but no, I'm, I'm really glad that you're, you're seeing that in this office space. This mm. is the third new build or the, the third fit out we've done for Roku. As, as we've grown in scale over the years, this is our third building on the science park. Yeah. And I think we've learned from each one about how to make it better, how to make it more inviting, um, so that you know we're not trying to take over people's home lives. We don't want people to you know stay in the office all days or you know camp out here, but we do want them to look forward to coming in. I, I hate that thing on a Sunday where you go, oh, the dread. I, yeah. I've got to go to work. This is ruining my weekend because I've got to go to work <laughs> tomorrow, and it's no, terrible. Just... You know, if we can solve that and get to a point where people are, you know, happy and, and willing and, you know, enjoy the atmosphere, enjoy the people they work with, mm -hmm. enjoy the conversations they have, um, and really find it productive to be in the office, then, yeah, yeah. we all win. Yeah, I mean, that team spirit was very obvious uh, this evening. Whereas, you know, you, you, you've all got your, your, your various shades of purple uh, T-shirts <laughs> moving around, uh, acting as a team, and that, 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 that's really impressive. And, as you, as you say, there, there, are, there is a lot of tech talent in the region that, that will, I think, come and look at this building. If, if you're listening to this from elsewhere in the region, come and take a look at this building because it, it is amazing. It is, you know, you, you can see the purple sign from miles away, especially at night where we're sitting in the darkness now. I love, that you, mentioned, is, I love that you mentioned that. So I was involved right from the, right from the start mm -hmm. in, in this project and the, the building was here. And I came and I looked at it and I thought, 
I want a Roku sign. <laughs> yes, of course you do. That people can see from the other side of the street. Mm. So how do we do that? How big can you make it? And we said our architects a yeah. big challenge. And they said, yep, we can make it seven meters across. And I said, yep, sign me up. <laughs> so I wanted to actually, just before I move on to t why tech and beer and what, 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 what uh, Roku are hoping to get from tonight, but when you sort of first came to this building and you've got that blank sheet of paper, what for you is, is, it was item one? Item one was thinking about what it's like for someone at their desk working as part of their team. So what do you want? You want to be able to see and kind of hear what's going on with the rest of your team. You need to be able to interact with a few other teams as well, but you don't want to see a, you, mm. you don't want a sea of desks. Yeah. You don't want noise from another team having a conversation that disrupts you too much. You need a yeah. bit of that because you need to figure out what's going on. So purpose number one was trying to get the right atmosphere for people sitting and, and actually doing the work. And so we thought very hard about the layout. How can we get teams co-located so they can collaborate well, but separated by, by meeting rooms or by corridors or yeah. by blocks? Um, so that there's not that noise pollution, there's not that endless sea of desks that you're looking at. Yeah. So with each sort of cluster of desks, we then think, okay, well, we need maybe one or two meeting rooms so that that team can have team meetings or one-to-ones. We want open collaboration space. So we want whiteboards. We want casual areas so that team can sit on stools or can stand up and have their, have their daily stand-ups, have a whiteboard there that they can use uh, to you know, create ideas or to have discussions about. So that, that, that was the real key thing for me. I wanted, I wanted that ideal space for, for, for people and teams to work. Yeah. So we're, we're, we're speaking at the end of, of, of another Tech and Beer, um, which is a, a great, great brand. And Kent Height is quite the showman, <laughs> as I'm sure you've, you've, you've experienced tonight. Um, what was it about, uh, about uh, Tech and Beer that made uh, you go, yeah, we'll get them in? and will bring the community to us. And that's, a, I suppose, why Tech and Beer and what you're hoping to get out of it and particularly what is it about bringing in the community from Cambridge and the wider east of England uh, and beyond that, that excites you? So the first thing is entirely selfish and selfish for the company is Roku is a household name in the US with the number one streaming provider in North America. And yet outside of the US, you know, that drops off quite a bit. Even in the UK, where we've had TVs for the last three years, we've had products for the last 10 years almost, um, we're not a household name. Mm. And so part of it is entirely selfish of, okay, how can we get the word out? How can we get people to know what Roku is? And this is a small part of that. You've got to start on your own doorstep. Part of it's recruitment. We're always looking for more people. And if we're able to attract the kind of people that we want, they see a bit of the space, they hear us talk, maybe they'll think about Roku in, in future years. And part of it's just you know, giving back a bit to the community. So we benefit from having this tech community um, in this region and being able to recruit and grow and form great yeah. teams, great companies here. And yeah, so, so we benefit from that community. So yeah, it, it's time to give, give a little bit back. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm really proud of the fact that some of my, uh, about 10% of my audience is in the US. So, you know, it, it, it's great to sort of show that side of, um, uh, um, 
of the East of England back to America. It's, and, you know, what a heaving room tonight. You must have been so pleased. Um, thank you ever so much, Tim Granger. Um, is, is any final messages? <laughs> I never quite know to say this point, which is a bit of a problem for a podcaster. <laughs> but is, is, is there anything, final message for the tech sector in the East of England from, from you, from Roku? So the final message is uh, Roku is here. We are a deliberate company that thinks about the kind of company culture and we think intentionally about how we want the company to be. I constantly get people who've started a Roku going, wow, this was the best place I never knew about. And people you know, genuinely say that to me. And if there's anything I can say, then it's, hey, we're here and find out about us. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Tim Granger. It's, uh, Tim, it's been an absolute pleasure. Cheers. Thanks, Mike. My thanks to Kent Height, to Tim Granger and the Roku team, and everyone whom I met at the event. I had more in the can than I could possibly include. Safe to say that the vibrancy, diversity, and global nature of the East of England's tech sector was there for all to see. And now... Alfred Hitchcock and I have a lot in common. And no, I don't mean waistline, hairline, or dangling from national monuments a la North by Northwest. No, I mean the fact that our adrenal glands have similar triggers. Small children and tall places, whether together or separately. But where in the east of England do you go to get your adrenaline rush? Let's clip on our bungee, or should I say... Bungie rope? No, 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 I shouldn't. No. And leap into the void for 2023's first... Crowd Sorcery. Yes, Crowd Sorcery. Now, the East of England has many, many wonderful geographical attributes. What it does not have is a preponderance of cliffs, crags or especially tall buildings. At least, none where the authorities will happily permit you to climb on or jump off. So, the adrenaline junkies among you have found your rushes elsewhere, though not through acceleration, but by forcing yourself through real, physical and emotional discomfort. And no, that does not include listening to me. Thank you. <clears throat> Let's welcome Andrew Brammer, commercial director and storyteller, for Andrew, it's getting on stage and performing his Stumpy Sanderson's 1970s stories live as a full-on humorous performance storytelling show. Now, if that sounds like fun, Andrew will be playing Norwich on Friday the 9th of June. For more information, go to stumpysanderson.co.uk. Someone else who's drawing their thrills through public performance is Dr Penny Hundleby, senior scientist at the John Innes Centre. This year... Speaking at the Norwich Science Festival may be my adrenaline fix, says Penny. It seemed like a good idea at the time when I agreed to it. I secretly find an unknown audience both exciting and equally terrifying. Thank you, Penny. It does the soul good to try the things that scare you. Now, Penny may not thank me for this, but you can catch her talk on plant breeding with genetic technology on Sunday the 12th of February between 2 and 3pm at the Business and IP Centre Room in the Millennium Library in Norwich. 
you know, I recently got on stage to do some stand-up, and I found the experience oddly relaxing, like being shifted into a different persona. That said, you know, I really am terrified of Panto, and even today I will not go under any circumstances. Difficult experience in the past, you see. It's not easy, even when it's behind you. Oh, what? What? That is a great joke. No, no, we're not doing that. Meanwhile, reveling in the agony and the ecstasy of the beautiful game is Simon Hughes, Director of Property at Norfolk County Council. Simon says, Surely, watching the Canaries, well, mainly the promotion-winning 1819 series, where they always got the winning goal in the 94th minute. Well, thank you, Simon. And speaking of soaring birds and championship football teams, someone itching to fly ever higher is Tom Abbott of Green Easy and Mott MacDonald. I've always wanted to try kite surfing at Walberswick Beach, says Tom, who adds, I haven't used my rip curl bat wing since my 20s. Well, thank you, Tom. And, well, the rest of this week's crowd sorcerers are revelling in what seems to me to be extreme physical discomfort. David Fieldhouse, business development professional, says, Not that I do it much these days, but... Surfing at West Runton in the winter always got the blood flowing, but... Jeez! Was it cold? Next, we turn to Kelly Boosie, working with whom is an adrenaline rush in its own right. Kelly said, I started the new year joining a five-kilometre park run in Rendlesham Forest on New Year's Day at 9am. Hmm, after seeing the new year in with Fizz and getting to bed late, Kelly doesn't know if it was adrenaline or alcohol that pushed her round. Well, it's not an either-or scenario, Kelly. And if it was Rendlesham, it could very well be. You know. I mean, you hang back a bit at the start, you nip behind a tree, and then... Hey, presto, you're at the finish line. Kelly adds that park runs are free and hosted across the UK. A great little New Year kickstart if you want to get back to fitness. The Rendlesham Forest Park Run is every Saturday at 9am in Rendlesham Forest, strangely enough. And when someone forms the Rendlesham Forest Park Stumble, Gasp and Wheeze, I shall be there. For more information, go to parkrun.org.uk forward slash Rendlesham Forest. But let's leave the last word to Anthony Quinn of the Communication Practice. Says Anthony, if an endorphin rush is more your thing... I can highly recommend a cold water swim at Jesus Green Lido in Cambridge. It's one of the longest outdoor pools in Europe, and you can warm up afterwards in the Finnish made sauna. I went this morning, says Anthony, and it was a brilliant way to start the day. Do you know, I am mildly tempted to do that just to say I did, Anthony. Mildly. Thank you for all those fantastic suggestions, and next week, I'll be asking you where you go to get the best view in the east of England. A view of what? That's up to you. It only leaves me to thank this week's brilliant guests. Robin Milton of Fairer Games, Kent Height of the Innovator Network, Tim Granger and all at Roku, to my crowd sorcerers and to Engineer 49. Now, I couldn't let Christmas pass without getting Engineer 49 a little something he wanted. So I asked him and he said he wanted frequencies and gave me a list. So I bought him some Hertz, uh, like this one, which is 147. And this one, which is 16,000. 
And this last one. Of course, that's in megahertz. What? Look, I'm just grateful he didn't want kilohertz. Most of all, thank you to you for listening. You could be doing anything with your time, and it really means a lot to me to have your company. I'll be back next week with the MP for Cambridge and the Shadow Minister for Farming and Fisheries, Daniel Zeichner. Until then, bye for now. Au revoir. Adios. Je suis Daniel. Ça Goodbye.